today on Ag News Daily. Whether you want to call this a trade war or not, uh, let's call it the war has been declared, but very few shots have actually been fired yet. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here on this June 20th, 2018, and I am joined by Ms. Hannah Pagel. Hannah, how you doing today? I'm doing great, Mike. And yourself? You know, not too bad, although I've got to confess, I was a little uh, unnerved. I was on Twitter, which is where I like to be most of the time, and I was looking at posts from the Des Moines weather station. Grinnell is expected over the next two days to get four and a half inches of rain. Wow. Holy cow. That's a I lot. I mean, we were getting a little dry, but I think four and a half might be overdoing it in uh, 48 hours, so... Anyway, there's thunder in the background right now, and if I end up getting disconnected from the podcast, it's probably because the house was struck by lightning. So hopefully that doesn't happen. <laughs> oh, hopefully that doesn't happen at all. No, no. So, well, Mike, well, what do you have yeah. going on in the world of news? You know, that's a great question, Hannah Pagel, and um, we've got a lot going on. Of course, trade tariffs, all that sort of stuff, the tit-for-tat talk between China and the U.S. is going on still, and we will get into detail with that a little bit later in this episode with a conversation with Dr. Chad Hart, an economist at Iowa State University. But I want to pick up a story that I learned about on Twitter, actually, from Jordan Fife, and now it's been reported by Reuters. And this is the fact that U.S. RINs, the renewable identification numbers whose price collapsed when Scott Pruitt began issuing all sorts of refinery waivers, jumped five cents today because there is news. This is an anonymously sourced story from the EPA that says EPA will go ahead and take the ethanol demand that Scott Pruitt took away with those waivers, and it will incorporate that back into the overall renewable volume obligations. This means that we're going to go back to needing that uh, 60 million bushels of corn to grind for ethanol, and that is good news. However, the weird thing is this goes against 100% against what Scott Pruitt said just a few days ago. So the market is a little confused, but if it happens, and it should be announced on Friday, we will uh, probably see that as a pretty, not super bullish, but at least a positive factor for the corn market, Anna. Well, that is great news for the ethanol corn industry. And I did see that Scott Pruitt is ending his tour in the Midwest and heading back to um, Washington, D.C., and he's going to sit down with some of the Renewable Fuel Standards uh, Committee, and he's going to get questioned. I know one of them is Senator Joni Ernst, excuse me, of Iowa, and they're going to ask him some questions. So, but I, I, I kind of hope your anonymous sourced uh, article is correct. I do too. I do too. I think it would be it would be a a feather in the cap for Secretary Sonny Perdue because he's been pushing for this for a while. It would be, I think, an appropriate thing to do given what the Trump administration, the uh, uncertainty that it's caused in the grain markets with all this tariff thing politically. I think it makes sense. And then, of course, I mean, being surrounded by corn growers here in Iowa, you know, I'd love to see uh, any bullish news or somewhat bullish news for the grain markets uh, come out into the open. So, Hannah, when you look around the world of agriculture, we've got EPA, we've got ethanol. What else is jumping out at you? 
So I've been doing a lot of reporting on this cultured lab meet, and I do have one more follow-up to give for you today. And I actually think it's very, very interesting. So yesterday I highlighted some of the questions that the FDA is looking at getting answered in their upcoming July 12th meeting on how to regulate this lab-grown meat. And one of our listeners, Gary Rasmussen, sent in this article that he found interesting about this topic. And after giving the article a read, I have to say I'm pretty intrigued as well. So a little background information for our listeners. Um, in this article, it discusses what is to be regulated by the government agency. So in theory, the USDA is responsible for regulating meat, poultry, and most egg products. And then the FDA is responsible for reg regulating everything else for food, so like milk, Pop-Tarts, just things you find on the shelf. Mm. Well, the FDA is quote-unquote calling dibs for regulating this lab-grown meat when theoretically it should be underneath USDA's control since it's, it's quote-unquote meat. But apparently in this article um, that Gary sent in, it talks a little bit about it threw it all the way back to August of 2017 where there was a food recall for pork egg rolls and how the USDA and the FDA fought back and forth between who should deal with the issue. And then it continued to talk or point out facts that like, so this is what I kind of found interesting. So the USDA regulates frozen pepperoni pizza and the FDA regulates frozen cheese pizza. So, <laughs> and it's the same thing. This is, this is the craziest one of all. So, the the USDA regulates open face sandwiches and the FDA regulates your typical sandwich that has two pieces of bread. <laughs> so oh I I just I don't understand why like that we have two entities that I mean essentially it should be underneath one big umbrella but it, it's getting thrown into two different things. But anyway, the FDA is claiming that this cultured meat is more like a drug than a food, so it's going to fall underneath the FDA's territory, which leads me into my next discussion on how the FDA is wanting to identify this food product. So there are a couple of groups out there who have already started throwing out terms for how to identify this lab-grown meat, and some of the groups that are for cultured meat grown in the lab are pushing for this product to be labeled as quote-unquote clean meat. Oh, that better not win, Hannah. Exactly. I hate that phrase. And so do many other groups in the agriculture industry because, of course, it implies that the way that we raise animals and traditional meat practices is, quote, unquote, dirty meat, which is why there is pushback for that name. But some of the other names that have been thrown out um, have also, these are um, from supporters who are for lab-grown meat. Uh, some of the names are safe meat, meat 2.0, green meat, and pure meat, which the pure meat one just kind of like I just rolled my eyes at a little bit. Um, but some of the names that the National Cattlemen's Association has thrown out and would like to see or would prefer includes in vitro meat, synthetic meat, or even meat byproducts. So what are your thoughts on all of this, Mike? Boy, you know, I, I expect that if you're going to bat in D.C. for a, a project you're paid to support, so if you're pro-cultured meat, of course you're going to call it safe and clean and all that other stuff. And if you're there, you know, I pay dues to the Iowa Cattlemen's Association and NCBA. I want them up there calling it fake meat for sure. I My 
sense is realistically, you know, it ought to be probably labeled as cultured meat, just like, um, uh, gosh, I can't think of any other examples because I don't think we've ever had a product quite like this, but I don't think you can call it synthetic because it's actual, you know, muscle tissue mm -hmm. and it's not fake. I mean, it's very real meat in a sense. It's just grown in a lab. So I think we got to compromise and just call it, you know, cultured meat or lab meat or, you know, something to uh, keep both sides happy. But, I, I, Hannah, I got to come back to what you mentioned about USDA regulates open face sandwiches. But as soon as you put the lid on it, you put that top piece of bread on, it becomes FDA, right? Correct. That's what this article stated. And I might need to do some more research into this because, honestly, I, I just I don't see the line where it's underneath USDA, USDA. And then, like you said, you put bread on top of it. It's a closed sandwich now. And now it's underneath FDA. But, yes, I, I don't know. It seems kind of mind boggling a little bit. Um, again, it's just that throwing back and forth between the, the agencies. And so, yeah, just. You know, I, I watch a lot of cop shows because I don't have much of a life, you know, Hannah, and you'll get there as you age. But uh, in <laughs> cop shows, they always have, you know, the local police show up and they've started the investigation. And then the FBI shows up and says, no, 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 we have jurisdiction. And when you talk about FDA and USDA fighting, that's kind of what I'm picturing. Like guys in lab coats going, no, 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 this is our crime scene slash open face sandwich. And it's just <laughs> it's very bizarre. It is indeed. And you know what? I'll just say this out to the listeners. I would love to get your guys' feedback on this subject. You know, what are your thoughts on who should regulate this cultured meat? And also, I want to know, what do you guys think that this should be, what should it be called or what should it be labeled at? Share your thoughts with us, your comments. We would love to hear from you. What are your thoughts, Hannah? What name, if, if Hannah was in charge of marketing, what name would you call it? I would honestly, I would agree with, with you, Mike, and just say it's cultured meat because that's literally, it's what it is. It's the most transparent of them all. I don't think you can say it's fake meat just simply because it, it is, it is meat. It's just grown or prepared a different way than traditional practices. And it's just, it's cultured and it's in a lab or just call it lab grown meat. I, I, I guess that's, that's kind of my thoughts on it. Just be as transparent as you can with, the, the with the consumer population absolutely and other interns if you're listening hannah just did something very very smart she agreed with the person who signs her check so <laughs> so write that down hannah is uh is very very sharp uh, <laughs> i've got uh just something interesting here we've talked to of course dr scott Irwin on the program he's one of the authors of the farm doc daily there at the university of illinois they just completed a very interesting study it's interesting if you're into ag finance and numbers and that kind of stuff if you're not you're probably not going to get much out of it but i found it fascinating basically they looked at what has happened to farm machinery expenses as the commodity boom was going on and so they look uh, starting in 2006 and what they found was surprising to me seeing it in black and white even though i think a lot of us who live in rural america wouldn't be shocked by the results if you've had to price any machinery at a dealership basically what they found is that uh, machinery expenses on a 1,000-acre farm in 2006 were about uh, $650,000. 
in, excuse me, in 2016. In 2006, the value of that machinery was about 300000 So farmers at 1,000 acres spent 124% more on machinery 10 years later than they did uh, in 2006. Same story at 2,000-acre farmers. They spent 140% more in 2016. Uh, the larger the growers get, the less on a percentage basis more than they were spending in 2006, which makes sense because they probably already had a fairly large machinery inventory and they just updated it. So if you're 5,000 acres or more, you spent an additional 73% on machinery. And the big question is, as you go through this, uh, this report from the University of Illinois, is, okay, We've got a lot of equity tied up in machinery in an environment where ag prices aren't stellar. They're not 2012 levels. We've got tariff threats and, and market uncertainty on the horizon. What does this do to farmers' balance sheets going forward? So growers, if you're listening, be aggressive in going in and talking with your lender. Be sure you can justify any additional pieces of machinery because it sounds to me like this is one of those places where lenders are going to be looking at uh, balance sheets a lot more closely in the next couple of years, especially once they see that, you know, more than 100 percent increase in expenses over a 10 year period. I mean, that's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. And since you brought up balance sheets. I want to get into a little bit. So some trade groups are asking for more checks and balances um, for Trump. So and this has actually kind of been a thought that's been provoking my head the past couple of days. But a group of almost 60 business associations are urging Congress to exert more oversight of President Donald Trump's use of tariffs as the U.S. is inching closer and closer into a trade war with China. And mainly they just want they just want more checks and balances in place. And this was kind of my my general question for you, Mike, because I was honestly kind of wondering how President Trump can just say, okay, we're going to put a tariff on this, this, and this, and we're going to target these people or this country. So obviously he has the authority and the power to do so. But from what I learned in all of my government classes in high school and in college, there, there's this thing called checks and balances. And it just to make sure that everyone is in line with what they have with their authority. So I'm just curious as to, is there not checks and balances in place for what the president can put on? Or how, how, do you know, do you know a little bit on how that works? You know, Hannah, it's a great question. And I think we'll definitely want to follow that up with uh, Dr. Chad Hart here in a second. But I know when we look at steel and aluminum, the first tariffs that were put on, he was able to do those unilaterally without Congress, without any other checks and balances, because he claimed that they fell under Section 232. And Section 232 allows the president to protect industries that we will need for national defense. And so that's where he got kind of the unilateral approval to do those first round. But now when we're talking 50 billion on China, 200 billion on China, I don't know quite where that authority comes from. So we'll check in with Dr. Chad Hart here in just a second. That sounds great. What other news do you got going on? You know what? I, I've got a lot of trade news, but I think we ought to save that for Chad rather than letting me prattle on about it. Let's get an expert, somebody with a Ph.D. behind his name to uh, <laughs> to give us some insight. Hannah, do you have any other news before we get to the markets? I don't, Mike. So why not just get us right into the markets and then we can get our questions answered by Dr. Chad Hart. 
Sounds like a plan, Hannah. All right, folks. Well, our markets today are brought to us, of course, by our good friends at the Zaner Group. Remember, put a marketing plan in place. Do it with their assistance. Give them a call. 312-277-0050 is their number. Or visit them online at Zaner, Z-A-N-E-R.com, and tell them you heard it on Ag News Daily. We did have a bit of a bounce back today in the grain markets. July corn contract was up half a cent, closed the day at 354 and a quarter. December up a quarter penny to finish at 375 and three quarters. In soybeans, the July was up half a cent at 889 and a half, while November was down a half, closed the day at 910 and a half. In Chicago wheat, the July contract was up 10 and a half cents, finished at 488 and a quarter, while the September was up nine and three quarters, closed the day at 499 and a quarter. Looking over at the world of livestock, strengths continued here in the meats. The June live cattle contract was up 50 cents at 1090250, while August was up 22 and a half cents to close at 10665. Mixed trade in feeder cattle, the August contract was down 20 cents at 1494250. September was up a nickel, closed the day at 14995. And lean hogs tariff threats again continue to pressure that market. The July contract was down $1.85 at 800250, while August was down $2 dollars 57 and a half cents to close at 75.15 and of course let's check in on our dairy farming friends we've got no change in the june class three milk contract finished at 15.32 while the july was down 12 cents to finish the day at 15 dollars even before we get to that trade and tariff discussion with dr chad hart let's hear a word from our friends at latham high tech seeds Joining us this week is Phil Long, the agronomy specialist up at Latham High Tech Seeds. And Phil, we've heard from growers that Japanese beetles are starting to make their appearance known. Boy, what should they be thinking of this time of year? Yeah, Mike, I mean, the, the Japanese beetles seem like they're coming out about the same time as the June beetles this year. I mean, it's just, uh, they're a little ahead of schedule. I know reports all across the state, especially here in the northern part. Uh, if you look at the calendar and kind of what we've seen the past 30 years, we're about two to 300 uh, growing degree units above average, which <laughs> makes sense with all the hot temperatures we've had. So it kind of pushed those Japanese beetles out of the ground a little faster than normal. And, um, you know, got you just got to remember the important parts. Usually their, their, their defoliation is not as big of a deal. It's usually the silk clipping and corn, which we're not there yet. But we've got a lot of small beans, especially in the northern part of the state. And I've seen a lot of setback by herbicides or other things. So they're, they're just not as good a health as, as normal. So uh, just pay attention to those types of fields because Japanese beetles can really uh, go to town pretty quick on, on small plants, you know. And your threshold is usually around 30% defoliation, uh, especially before bloom. And after bloom, it's more like 20, 20% defoliation when, when you should spray. So uh, just keep those things in mind as, as you're looking at those small beans that are trying to play catch up. Perfect. And folks, if you want to work with a company as quality as Latham High Tech Seeds, you can give them a shout at 1-877-GO-LATHAM or visit their website at LathamSeeds.com. Well, folks, today we're hopefully going to clear up some of these uh, questions that I've heard, that we've all heard from various folks about tariffs and trade and what all this means long term. So we're talking to Dr. Chad Hart. He's an assistant professor of economics at Iowa State University. He's the extension economist there at Iowa State, and he is a crop market specialist. He is a guru that I have presented a lot with, and uh, he's one of my favorite resources for uh, for cash grains information Dr. Hart, thanks for taking the time to join us. Mike, it's always a pleasure to join you. 
Now, I, I want to kick it off, and I want to go to the basics first. You know, we've got to build the foundation before we build the first story. And part of, I think, what challenges people when we talk tariffs is a lot of the terminology. And we've heard quite a bit about the Trump administration putting tariffs on Chinese goods. Now, that means that we're charging China more money, right? We're charging them a tax. Do I have it right? Well, we're charging a tax, and it depends upon the market as to who actually pays the tax. I want you to think of a tariff as an import tax. So what's happening there is we put a tariff on their goods. What happens is, let's say you're buying an iPhone from China, and it costs $500 when it hits the border here. If this has a 10% tariff on it, that means we're going to add another $50 of cost to that iPhone as it moves through the U.S. system. Same thing's happening on the flip side here, and that's why we're looking at, like, soybeans. China's talking about a 25% tariff there. What that's going to do is that's going to add 25% to the cost of U.S. soybeans that go into China. And the person who pays that cost uh, initially is the person who imports it, right? It's the, the importer who collects the goods at the port, writes a check for whatever the tariff is. That is correct. It's that importer who pays first, and then it's up to the importer to figure out, well, how do I try to share that cost out from that that tariff? Do I charge that to my customers down the line? Do I try to negotiate a harder price to pay a little less for the good coming in? And so it can go either forward or backward from that importer. All right. Now, when we think of the trade war rhetoric that is being tossed around quite a bit, Jed, is there a definition of a trade war? What does that mean? There is no hard definition. So if you will, war is like art, is like pornography. It's all in the eye of the beholder. In this case, I think what you could argue here is we're definitely having trade skirmishes. Whether you want to call this a trade war or not, uh, let's call it that war has been declared, but very few shots have actually been fired yet. It's been a lot of you know discussion, um, announcements about potential trade impacts, about potential trade you know tariff uh, you know implications here, but not a lot of them have actually been implemented yet. And so typically, I think most people look at trade wars when when the tariffs actually start to take effect, when they really hit the markets and you know have a drastic impact on trade flows. So, Chad, the prices of the tariffs we've seen has just been increasing in the last couple of days, and it's just been going, it's just a retaliation right now. It's just going back and forth, back and forth. Do you have, I know this is a million-dollar question, but do you have any insight as to how far, you know, Trump is willing to go, China is willing to go? Because, I mean, China is a huge trading partner. They have a lot of goods. We have a lot of goods. So, I just, I can't fathom or quite comprehend yet how we can keep continuously increasing these tariffs. And I just wondered if you had any insight as to how far how far will we go? Well, we've gone a very long way right now. And arguably, we're, the spot we're at right now is really going to test uh, the resolve of both countries. What uh, President Trump has proposed um, basically is almost a tariff on everything that enters from China. Um, in this case, for China to retaliate in a, let's call it a like-size size or style, um, they would have to probably move beyond just tariff features 
to bring in other types of trade policy or just governmental policy to try to have offsetting moves there. So we pushed this about as far as, if you will, a trade battle can go in terms of, you know, taxing almost everything that's flowing between the two countries. And, Chad, when you think back, you know, throughout history, of course, we've heard about the Smoot-Hawley tariffs as this has come up. When was the last time we had uh, tariffs of this magnitude imposed on either a country or on a single product? Has it when, has it happened at all recently? Oh, yeah. No, we have uh, tariff battles like this probably on, on the average of about every four to five years. But typically they're they're highly localized, if you will. I think what makes this – it's so interesting and special right now is that right now we have sort of ongoing trade disputes with basically almost all of our major trading partners. It's not often that you have that sort of trade uncertainty going on all at the same time. So, Chad, I, I asked this question earlier to Mike, and, you know, in my basic econ classes that I have learned, we have always covered the topic of checks and balances. And with Trump saying that he's going to put a, a you know, 50 or a $50 billion tariff here and, you know, 10% more tariffs here, he keeps going and going. How, how is there not checks and balances in place right now? Or is there, or what, what is allowing Trump to continue driving up these tariff costs? Well, there are, let's call it potential checks and balances here, but the, the overriding feature right now is that what the president has right now is what they call trade promotion authority. And that was Congress gave the president this. It's been several years ago. So it was before President Trump was in office. But it basically set up and it said Congress is going to trust the president in order to negotiate trade agreements. We're going to give him some broad latitude to, to, to do those agreements, to make trade rules in order to carry on those negotiations. And President Trump is using that you know, power to his advantage as best he can. And so it was originally thought as, you know, a way to negotiate new agreements. Now it's sort of being used on the, let's call it the flip side of it now, where it's also being used in trade disputes. Interesting. So that's where this authority is coming from. And does that TPA, that trade uh, promotion authority, is that kind of open-ended? Will will he have it throughout his entire administration unless Congress votes to change? If I remember right, it has a sunset provision, meaning that it lasts only for a certain amount of time, and then Congress would have to renew it. Um, One of the things that Congress has talked about, though, and I think this goes back to, I think it was Senator Corker, who was looking at trying to put the brakes on uh, some of President Trump's announcements, is Congress can revisit that issue and rescind that. But, again, it's one of these deals where Congress would have to pass it, and then the president, if you will, would either have to sign it or Congress would have to override him um, in order to take that back. And what does an override look like? Can you explain a little bit on that? Yeah, in this case, I want you to think about, like, if the president vetoes a bill... Uh, Congress has the chance, if they can create basically a supermajority, if I can get you know, the vast majority of Congress going, no, we believe this should be law, they can override a presidential veto. And that's the sort of situation we would be looking at here. Okay. Now, Chad, I want to bring it into your wheelhouse a little bit and talk crop 
pricing. Of course, we heard announcements yesterday of President Trump, uh, you know, threatening another $200 billion worth of tariff. China, of course, threatening to retaliate. We saw the soybean market drop, what, 60, 70 cents on the day, and it rebounded by the end of the day. But realistically, if China does put 25% tariffs on its American soybean imports, what does that mean? Don't they have to feed their people anyway? Well, they do, but, you know, what they're playing is the same sort of game we are. The idea is that they're willing to take on some pain um, through these tariffs in order to, you know, make a more principled stand, if you will, on their trade objectives. As we're looking at soybeans, uh, as you mentioned, it wasn't just yesterday's drop. When you look back over the past three weeks, soybean complex has basically lost, what, a buck fifty a bushel over the past three weeks. A lot of that loss is due to concerns in the marketplace about these tariffs going in place and what it means for trade flows. Here you're looking at the U.S., the world's largest soybean producer, and China, the world's largest soybean consumer, battling it out. And one of the you know tools being utilized here is a fairly significant tariff on soybeans that will definitely impact trade flows, and that's got the market sort of running scared right now, worried that these things not only are they going to go in place, but they might be here through harvest time. So, Chad, I was talking with my dad yesterday, and we saw that huge drop in the soybean market. And, you know, I was just getting some insight from him, and he was telling me, you know, it's not good, especially for farmers who still have grain left to sell. Do you have any insight on what farmers with grain left to sell should do with all of these tariffs going on? Well, that's the issue here, and yeah, it's those farmers that still have grain left to sell that are really feeling the pinch right now, because typically, you know, you'd like to have those bins cleared out, you know, by the mid-July, preparing for the next crop. Uh, this comes at an inopportune time for those folks. They've watched, like I say, those prices slide 15% over the past three weeks, and realistically right now, they're not seeing any signs of trade policy settling down enough to allow it to rebound. And so probably a lot of people are looking at, okay, do I just sort of cut my losses now, make that cash sale, and then do I try to figure out a marketing tool that will give me some upside potential just in case something, if you will, breaks and we do get uh, some relief from these tariffs coming this fall. And so probably looking at, you know, do I want to play a, a call option? Do I want to own uh, these bushels back on paper so that I'm not at least, you know, knocking off the, the storage cost here, but can still possibly get some upside potential if things settle down. Now, Chad, when you're when you're working with growers, when you're working with farmers across the country and they're making these decisions, we're trying to figure out how much should I be marketing ahead of time, given the weird weather we've got? How much should I be dealing with this corn that's in the bin, plus all of this trade uncertainty? What's the mindset like to navigate a, uh, a situation like this? For a lot of younger growers, we haven't seen this kind of a trade dispute in the ag commodities. I, I mean, in my lifetime, or at least lifetime that I've been around to engage in it. Well, yeah, and I, I think that that's the deal. These, this used to be a little more commonplace back in especially the 80s, uh, where we saw a few more trade disputes than we've been seeing recently. But the idea is, yeah, as we're looking here right now, Hopefully, a lot of farmers, especially those that do a lot of pre-harvest marketing, you know, took advantage of, you know, earlier this spring because we were staring at some fairly good pricing coming off the board as we went into February, March, even early April. Um, and then, you know, here it's more like probably a lot of farmers are taking a wait-and-see attitude towards any sort of forward contracting. 
We've watched prices slide, especially for the new crop. We don't have to get into a, a great deal of hurry marketing that yet because, you know, we tend to do the bulk of our marketing as we go into the winter, early springtime of the year. And so that's where I think the rubber will hit the road, if you will. And that's why I think especially the marketplace is concerned. Not that the tariffs go in place here in July, but will they still be there in September and October when we really start to see a lot of market action? So, Chad, I'm going to kind of turn the tables here a little bit. Yesterday on the podcast, Delaney had mentioned that she was wondering where Terry Brandstad is in all of this tariff talk. And for our listeners out there, Terry Brandstad is the ambassador to China. And I know you're not like his personal assistant or anything, but I was just wondering if you had like any insight as to what he could be working on or talking, or do you know who he'd be talking to, or why haven't we heard a comment from him with all of this trade discussion going on? Well, I think, you know, what what's happening is Terry's probably working behind the scenes as ambassador to China. You know, he is, you know, making sure that there are connections between the Trump administration and, and President Xi's administration there, trying to line those folks up. And I think one of the reasons you're not seeing any sort of public proclamations from him is that this is being if you will, publicly negotiated at higher levels than just the ambassador. When you think about it, we've had the president making direct statements about this relationship. We've sent over our Secretary of Commerce and our Secretary of Treasury to help negotiate um, through this dispute. And so this is being done at the very highest levels. And as ambassador, Mr. Branstead is basically just trying to be that connection between the two administrations and try to ease that discussion, if you will, as best he can. Now, Chad, before we let you go, for growers out there that are seeing these headlines and these tweets just kind of whiz back and forth constantly, what's some advice you have in a situation where, where panic can catch on? If we see a, an 80 cent drop in the bean market or a 60 cent drop like we saw yesterday, what, what do growers need to keep in mind? What can help keep us sane during this type of negotiation? Well, and, and I'll point back to yesterday's moves, and as they sort of give you a precursor of what happens when you get tariffs being talked about here, you tend to see a great big initial downward movement, and then the market, if you will, sort of recovers. We've seen this with soybeans a couple of times already this year. We've seen it with pork as well. And so, you know, we're seeing these big moves, and the idea is that don't panic. You know, the idea is especially with new crop or or new livestock sales, we have some time on our sides for prices to rebound a little bit here. And we also have time for negotiations to help knock some of these tariffs off, possibly. For example, looking at the soybean market, the big date is probably July 6th that we're watching here because that's when the U.S. tariffs on China, most of them go in place, along with China has announced that their retaliatory tariffs are going in at the same time. So that means we got about two, two and a half weeks of negotiation before those tariffs are supposed to hit. And hopefully, uh, you know, discussions will, if you will, remove some of these tariffs before we get there. And that would allow these markets to recover a little quicker if that can happen. So in this sense, time is on our side. This volatility that's mainly been showing up on the downward side can also reverse itself if we can avoid um, – some of these tariff pronouncements. 
All right, folks. Well, we're talking to Dr. Chad Hart from Iowa State University, a man who wears many hats up there. And Chad, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us and help kind of break this issue down a little bit better for us. Well, thanks for having me on. And again, that was Chad Hart up at Iowa State University. And Mike, I have to say, this has probably been one of my favorite interviews that we've done so far. I, I learned a ton from Chad, so I'm I'm very excited about this interview. Absolutely. One of the things I really appreciate about Chad is that he explains things in a way that, uh, to me, make a lot of sense. I have a tendency to get all fired up and frustrated and, you know, I spout off and I say things that maybe aren't entirely accurate. And Chad, you can tell he thinks about what he's saying. He thinks about his audience. And then he offers an interpretation that usually makes a lot of sense. So I thought that was that was good. Listeners, if you've got more questions on trade or tariffs, by all means, uh, shoot us a note. Find us on Facebook or Twitter. Just search for Ag News Daily, or you can visit our website at agnewsdaily.com and submit them there. And with that, Hannah, should we let the people go? Let's let them go, Mike. 